Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It is Thursday, June 18th, 2020. And I want to thank some folks who helped make the show possible. You know the drill. Bill and Joseph, Sarah and Barry, and Teresa and Terry, and Les and Daniel, Eric, Matthew, Patty, James, I appreciate all of your support. Thanks so much. Uh, Couldn't do it without you. And uh, we're going to be doing a big announcement later on tonight. If you're not a patron of the program like those folks are, you're not going to find out about it when I make the announcement tonight on the Patreon live stream, uh, which I think we're going to start calling it Pete's live stream of consciousness. I think that's (laughs) because it kind of goes in all sorts of different directions with everybody. Anyway, uh, that's on the Patreon uh, platform tonight at seven o'clock. All righty. So Google, so NBC reported that Google banned two far right websites from its advertising platform. This is Google ads. And if you are unaware of how this works, basically Google sells uh, all of these little ad spots throughout your uh, websites uh, that you visit, right? The website will just put sort of like a place marker there, and then Google will populate ads into those spots or those widgets, right? They'll put them in there, and um, the ads that you see, and everybody knows this, right, they're targeted to you based on all of the information that Google scoops up about you <laughs> from everywhere uh, that it can. And so Google runs this platform, Google Ads, and um, this is how a lot of websites make money. By the way, it's not a lot of money. You need to have like millions and millions and millions and millions of hits every single day uh, for you know long periods of time because you get, it's something ridiculous like 0.01 cent something like that per per uh, page view or click or whatever. I don't even know how it all works. Uh, I'm sure it's changed since the last time I fooled around with it, you know, more than a decade ago. Anyway, Google banned two far right websites from its advertising platform after research revealed the tech giant was profiting from articles pushing unsubstantiated claims about the Black Lives Matter protests. This is NBC. Okay that the says that these websites are profiting from articles. Uh, or maybe it didn't, actually. We're not really sure. Google verified this story to NBC, according to the report that I'm reading, saying uh, that it moved both sites, or sorry, removed both sites' ability to monetize with Google. Zero Hedge was one website, and The Federalist was the other. Uh, They've become well-known, NBC says, in recent years for publishing far-right articles on a variety of subjects. Uh, On the recent protests, Zero Hedge published an article claiming that protests were fake, while The Federalist published an article claiming that the media, specifically NBC, (laughs) had been lying about looting and violence during the protests, which were both included in the report that got sent to Google. 
We'll actually talk with a former senior editor of The Federalist for about six years. David Hassani will join us in a minute to talk about this. First, let me talk to you about your sleep. Is it good? Are you getting Are you getting a good night's sleep? Is it um, because the mattress you're sleeping on? If you're not getting a good night's sleep, I have had some pretty bad mattresses in my life. I really have. I remember the first one I ever bought when I uh, left the dorms in college. The first one I ever bought was at some, you know, Goodwill type of a place, and it was not good. And within, you know, I don't know, probably about 17 or 18 minutes of sleeping on it, there was this big crater in the middle of it, and and all of the springs were creaky, and they would, like, jab into me and stuff. And I slept on that thing for several years. I've slept on an air mattress for uh, a year. I've slept on, yeah, I've slept on some bad mattresses, okay? So, You don't know how good your sleep can be until you get a great mattress, and you get great mattress at Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. Four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. They have uh, five-star delivery service, local white glove service for free, and everybody gets the 120-day comfort guarantee. And all this month of June, zero, zero, zero financing. Zero down, zero percent APR, and zero payments for 90 days. They want you to get a good night's sleep. Let them help you help yourself. Okay? All this month, zero, zero, zero. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. NBC News reported that two sites, uh, Zero Hedge and The Federalist, had both gotten banned uh, from generating revenue through Google Ads. So writes David Hersanyi, the civil, or sorry, senior writer at National Review Online. He's also a syndicated columnist and the author of a book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun, which, by the way, Father's Day gift idea for folks, if they're interested, if your dad's a collector of sorts, uh, or interested in history. David, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And civil, usually. Civil, that's right. Civil civil writer, a civil and senior writer. So, uh, first off, this uh, this woman who wrote the piece, her name is Adele Momoko Fraser, and um, she is a producer with the News Verification Unit at NBC, which I wasn't even aware that there is a News Verification Unit. I thought, isn't that sort of in the business of the news department like that's isn't that part of the job description i would think right i mean i think i'm just guessing here but i assume that that probably came about because of the just hysteria among major news outlets over you know supposed fake news and uh you know conspiracy theorists trolling twitter accounts and russia bots etc so i i've noticed you know, that that was a big deal. So I assume this unit, this Orwellian-sounding unit, came about because of, of that concern. Right. So she, yeah. this woman, Adele Momoko Fraser, uh, she has, by the way, I, I don't know if it's been updated again. It might have actually been updated just moments ago since we started speaking. She's been updating this story throughout the last, I guess, not even 24 hours. Um, and the story is that these two websites, and full disclosure, you used to be, uh, what, a senior editor for The Federalist? That's actually, I think, where I first started reading your work was over at The Federalist. Yeah, I was one of the first editors there from 2013, and then I left 2009, at the end of 2019. So I, I was there a bit. 
So uh, this is not the first time that the Federalist has been targeted for this kind of stuff. It's it's really weird to me. There's something about that website. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but people on the left really don't like that website more so than like now you're at National Review. I don't see the kind of sort of pitchforks and torch efforts against National Review as I've seen against the Federalist. Do you have any idea why or maybe I'm off base on that? I, I do have an idea why. I okay. think <laughs> tonally, tonally there's a difference, right? I think the Federalist is, has more um, you know, um, you know, more out, how can I say, more direct and, you know, aggressive kind of folks. Though, again, I want to mention that I mentioned this in my piece, but that there's a wide variety of writers at the Federalist. So you mm-hmm. have some very subtle, you know, arguments being made. And then you have some, I would say, contrarian and, per, you know, arguments being made that upset people. So I think, for instance, if you take the transgendered issue, there are a lot of writers at the Federalist who, who care about that and talk about it in very stark and aggressive ways, which I think is fine. I mean, that's what debate's about. And and because it's one of the sites that does that and appeals to women and maybe some younger readers, I think that makes, you know, it creates more critic, critics for it. And, and that's sort of like on that stuff is like a wildfire on, on Twitter and that it creates this sort of mob that, go, you know, tries to shut that's- a site like that down. That's interesting. I hadn't considered because the audience at the Federalist has always been, um, I don't know, at least my perception has been more geared towards a lot of the writers geared towards women. And I always understood that to be sort of an intentional approach. But I guess then that also means, if that's true, that you're then popping up on other like in social media feeds of a lot of other women who don't necessarily agree with the politics of the pieces that are getting written. And so maybe that, yeah, it, it presents this sort of uh, new avenue, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think, don't get me wrong, I think the National Review makes a lot of the same arguments uh, on those issues, but there's definitely a focus there, to, you know, towards women. And I think you have, that it's very rare to have dissent on those sorts of issues, uh, you know, on the transgendered stuff, on abortion, on on just you know, cultural family issues that uh, the Federalist tends to write a lot about. So, and I also uh, quickly would say that I think that the National Review, simply because it's been around so long, is a, is a harder target. It has a big, I think it has a bigger audience, but also mm. it's, it's more, you know, it's just been around a longer time, so it's probably harder for them uh, to go after. But if you take down the Federalist, I am sure the National Review would be, come, you know, next or su- coming soon after. Right. It's the thing about feeding the alligator, hoping it eats you last, is eventually it does eat you, right? Like that's <laughs> it's always yeah. the same end result. Uh, so this woman who, uh, Adele Momoko Fraser, and I just keep, I just enjoy saying her name. I don't know why I'm saying it so much. Our but... names are so boring. Like I need <laughs> right. a name like that. David. That's right. David. Yeah. Pete. So boring. Yeah, boring. <laughs> so, uh, but she is a producer and um, she's had to rewrite this story now several times. I, and we uh, mentioned this, like, this has got to be the worst feeling in the world. I know when I was a reporter, I remember actually have, going home, going to bed, and it was a late like local government meeting night, and it was I woke up at like three o'clock in the morning, sat right away, got my car, drove back to the station, rewrote the story because I was so worried about a sentence I had written being incorrect. So like that pit of the stomach feeling, um, she's got to be feeling that all day today because she's had to revise the story several different times about what Google did or did not do particularly with the Federalist. 
Well, I'd say this. I agree. I mean, having to write out corrections when I was at a newspaper was the worst feeling on earth. Making a mistake, it's just you're terrified of having to do that. But I assume that you and I were not activists in the same way this woman was. And I also assume that there were consequences when we were reporters to ha- having many, many corrections in the newspaper. You would end <laughs> up not working soon, right? Right. I mean, it beca- it, 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 if it was a problem, whereas today... There will be zero consequences for her. There will be zero consequences. Uh, there are zero consequences for making these kind of supposed mistakes that always seem to skew in the same direction, you know, all the time. Moreover, she. This is not a news story. This was her seeking out a bogus, you know, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Center kind of like for factor. yeah, Center for Countering Digital Hate is the name. A British nonprofit that purports to combat online hate and misinformation. So she went overseas to get the right. the data to hit the Federalist back in America. <laughs> right, and then send it to Google to have them. So my theory is that she she found this uh, you know serious sounding organization. <laughs> Places comply. I mean, I went. I looked at that site. It's just in complete garbage. You know, it's they have these reports, and it's just as far as I can tell, is one is this one guy, and he's got a few of these organizations. But anyway, she takes this report, brings this to Google. Google says, "Wow, you know, these people are pretty racist, whatever." And then um, sends the Federalist a letter saying that we're going to uh, demonetize you, but uh, and then has to walk it back. So. I am. I would be more. I'm more upset, or not say upset, but I'm more worried about NBC News feeling like it can be actively try to suppress or destroy a site that was critical of it than I am of Google falling for a trick and then walking it back, which I think is actually a good good sign. I mean, that's my perception of of, of what's going on. Right. So the original story that she published that uh, got all of the outrage clicks, right, was uh, that. Google, upon being alerted by her to this uh, racisty racism over at the Federalist, that they de- said that they were going to demonetize or had actually already demonetized uh, the Federalist. And in your piece, which is at National Review Online, headline NBC News's attempt to demonetize the Federalist is illiberal is insanity. Um, that the uh, the the original uh, idea here was that there was some article, and you actually tracked down what, as best you can tell, um, there was a, there was an article that you found that may have fit the bill, or that people were talking about. Uh, but that wasn't even it, right? Like it wasn't even yeah, about I mean, an article. I, I do, I do think that that was it initially, and until people, so then someone at Google had a. Quick trigger finger, right? And then realized someone else realized, oh my god, this is ridiculous. This piece is not racist at all. I, I she mentions the piece specifically in the original, in her original reporting, which is a piece that uh, that argues that the media has downplayed looting and rioting because they don't want to, you know, they 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 want it to seem like Black Lives Matter protests were, com- you know, completely. Um, peaceful, etc. Now, you can disagree with that or not disagree with it, but making that argument is no way racist in any genuine sense. I mean, maybe in the constantly expanding definition of it in the world, it might be, but but I think that's a tough argument to make. So anyway, that was mentioned. Um, Then later, you know, Google said it was about the comment section, which is insane because (laughs) have they ever looked at a YouTube comment 
section or a, I mean, they'd have to shut down every site in America. And uh, I just think that that was a fallback. And that's just my, I don't know anything. I've not spoken to the, my friends over there about it, but you know, it just seems to me like the comment section thing it was something Google came up with to to try to uh, make you know make it seem like they were acting in, in in good faith, which they were not. I don't think. Right. Google took to Twitter and said their communications folks said, "quote The Federalist was never demonetized. Our policies do not allow ads to run dangerous or derogatory content, which includes comments on sites." And we offer guidance and best practices to publishers on how to comply. Um, as the comment section has now been removed, we consider this matter resolved and no action will be taken. So, so you think, so you think Google did act, but then it, uh, walked it back rather than uh, like a Google spokesperson told Adweek that NBC just flat out got the story wrong, and Google only said that they could that the Federalist could be demonetized. <laughs> so. Uh, they're they're like throwing NBC under the bus. It sounds like. Yeah, but the, but I believe, and I could be wrong about this. The original statement from that she has in the story from a Google spokesperson contradicts that statement. Right. <laughs> they say they say that they, it has been demonetized. I think they didn't realize this, and this is also me just just a theory of mine. That they didn't realize that the Federalist is actually not some small site that no one reads, but one that has millions of people coming to every day. So, or, you know, every mile or, you know, whatever. Right. But so it's, it's a site that has quite the reach that can be, you know, that can, the, the founding editor will be on Tucker Carlson that night complaining about it. I think they didn't realize <laughs> that. And, um, you know, they could have so Googled it, to... right? Why not just Google the federal? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would ask, I would ask this question. I don't know if anyone's asked or looked into how many sites have ever been demonetized over their comment section before? Ever has it ever happened? Mm. I mean, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, yeah, yeah. Considering, <laughs> I remember when these things, when, when uh, I was at a radio station, and they just started up with these forums. The you know people could come in and comment, and you know we were policing it. You know, newsroom people, we were in there trying to police all these comments. We couldn't keep up. We eventually shut the whole yeah. thing down. It's just, it was just a time suck, and of course, people, you know, as as they are known to do, they, they start flaming each other, and all of a sudden you get all of these comments and stuff, and you just can't you can't police it. So yeah, you either pull the plug or you have to just be constantly watching it. It's a it's an impossible standard. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, the comment sections are usually just a cesspool, right. especially if they're open. <laughs> but you know, it can also be like this. I mean, if you don't like the Federalist, you'll just send a bunch of people into the comment section to say all kinds of racist things if you want to get them in trouble, right? I mean, that doesn't this incentivize people to to purposely undermine sites they don't like and then report them. It's just, it's impossible to police speech in this way, which is why, you know, I, I, I've long argued, at least I don't think that Facebook or Twitter should be arbiters of, of truth or or anything like that. I mean, obviously, there's obvious abusive behavior, and we have block buttons, and we can curate our own experiences. So I, I just don't see why they would involve themselves in that. It's just going to upset half the people. Yeah. The original statement, as you mentioned, it was in the original NBC story. Uh, Google spokesperson was quoted as saying, when a page or site violates our policies, we take action. In this case, we removed both sites' ability to monetize with Google. So <laughs> it seems just a huge contradiction, right? Right. That they'll never have to answer for. 
But you know, I, I, again, I think it's it's a good thing that they that they're walking it back, as far as we know. I, I don't know if the Federalist comment section is back yet or not. They they did take it off, but um, but I think it's scary that NBC News, one of the major news outlets in this country, went out of its way to try to shut down another site, incidentally, over a story mentioned in that NBC report that was critical of NBC. <laughs> Basically, it was like <laughs> retaliation. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there aren't a ton of conservative outlets. The Federalist is, is one of the top conservative outlets on the Internet. And uh, if they're critical of NBC, NBC will find one guy in England who will write a report up, send it to Google, and Google will demonetize him. I mean, that, that's, that's why I said insane, because it is insane. Uh, yeah, so let me give folks some detail on that. The Center for Countering Digital Hate uh, has a project called Stop Funding Fake News. Um, and over at Reason, uh, they say they call it a progressive workshop that engages in public advocacy campaigns. And basically their goal is to pressure companies to stop advertising on right-wing websites. But this this group, Center for Countering Digital Hate, this is according to your colleague Jim Garrity at National Review, um, says a quick scan of the site will illustrate that the group relies on unsubstantiated internet trolling as a basis for its quote-unquote reports. It looks as if, this is my favorite part, it looks as if the site is manned by one person <laughs> named Imran Ahmed, who seems to believe that Microsoft and Ford are also part of the white supremacist conspiracy. <laughs> so yeah, he, he was actually he's actually quoting me there. And uh, oh, great. I okay. To, yeah, yeah, and I linked to uh, a tweet of his where he, he talks about Ford and Microsoft as being part of you know uh, you know the funding white supremacist sites because you know white supremacist sites are anyone you disagree with now if you're a progressive. So um, I mean it's absurd. First of all, that it's a, another. So all happened in England, and, and Sean Davis, the co-founder of the Federalist, was on Tucker yesterday, and I think he rightly pointed out that every, all these people are supposed always in hysterics about Russian trolls, but yet NBC News will go to England right before an election and try to shut down one of the conservative sites in the country using, you know, some nonsensical, uh, you know, report from some made-up, you know, some front progressive front in England. I think that's a that's that's a pretty big problem. Uh, and it's pretty unprofessional for a reporter to do that. And so you mentioned that you're more concerned about the way this uh, producer acted as an activist. And I don't know if there was a second part of that sentence. I may have cut you off, but the uh, more concerned about that than what is it? The calls now to what revisit this Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, because I'm seeing people say, that this needs to be revisited, you know, uh, Google's not a publisher, uh, or now they're a publisher, not just a platform, and we need to, you know, get rid of these protections that they enjoy. I, I am for keeping the protections they enjoy, but, I mean, think about this. Google says that 230 should exist to protect them because it's, they should not be responsible for the things commenters say on their sites, right? <laughs> but yet, they themselves go out and hold hold websites responsible for the things that people say on their sites, third-party users. How, how do you, like, I get legally they can do that, but how, how can you make that argument to people? It's, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just nuts. So um, I am worried 
that when you have something like this happen, you're just fueling the anger and allowing politicians to, to change laws and try to make things fair, like fairness doctrines and removing two th- Section 230 or changing it in some way. I don't, I, I don't have a good answer for how to fix any of this, but I don't think that that's the way to do it because when you empower government with that sort of, you know, when you empower them in that way, they're going to use that power in the future. And I can assure you that conservatives will come out on the short end of that at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the practical reason to be against it. So there should be an idealistic reason to be against it is that we shouldn't be policing speech in that way. I think the answer is better people. But I don't know where we get those. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that answer has never worked in human history, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, well. better people. Now, I mean, I think generally people are good, honestly, but you get the worst sorts of people on the Internet doing in comment sections, for instance. But you also, good people act in the worst possible way when they're online and, you know, anonymous. And, you know, they get to be mad at uh, people they disagree with and without any consequence. So you get the worst kind of behavior. Uh, I, I don't know that trying to police that kind of thing is, is even possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Harsanyi, senior writer and syndicated columnist at National Review. He's the author of a book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. Again, good Father's Day gift idea for folks. David, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, I do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. On 
on to North Carolina media, where a coalition of more than two dozen media outlets filed a lawsuit seeking the release of a list of records related to COVID-19 that so far the state is refusing to provide. The lawsuit names as the defendants Governor Roy Cooper and two of his cabinet secretaries, uh, Dr. Mandy Cohen, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, and Eric Hooks, the Secretary of the Department of Public Safety. Capital Broadcasting Company, which is the parent company of WRAL, which is the report that I am reading from, is among the news organizations filing suit, along with the News and Observer and WTVD and a bunch of other media outlets across the state. The complaint lists a total of 26 outstanding records requests, nine that went to Department of Public Safety and 17 to Health and Human Services. These were all submitted by media outlets seeking records that they thought would be helpful in reporting on COVID-19. All but one of the requests were submitted since the pandemic began. Among the records listed in the lawsuit are the state's database of COVID-19 cases with personal identifying information removed. The database maintained by the State Office of Emergency Management that tracks requests for personal protective equipment and other supplies by hospitals and local governments. They want to see that. They want to see copies of reports of prison inspections conducted during the pandemic, and they want communication between officials at DPS and Health and Human Services. And they want communication from DHHS officials to local health departments. Okay, so there are a lot of sweeping records requests that they have made. Now, uh, this is always sort of a a balancing act uh, for, you know, GovCo and the media and uh, citizens because... Uh, look, you, know, you could overwhelm governments with some of these requests, and I've seen people do it specifically for that reason. Just just spam the heck out of some local government agency or something in order to bog it all down. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, they would charge. Sometimes they start charging people who are, uh, you know, seeking frivolous amounts of, uh, or I shouldn't say frivolous amounts, they're frivol- frivolously seeking large amounts of records that uh, once, you know, they get collected and handed off to people, you know, a lot of times they're just citizens, they never do anything with it. But you got a lot of news organizations that are making, you know, demands for everything. So, um, you know, I, I get it, there's a balancing act here, but so far the administration, the Cooper administration in North Carolina, uh, their response has been uh, oftentimes nothing. They just don't respond. <laughs> they just aren't even acknowledging it, let alone trying to comply with it. For weeks, attorneys for the media organizations talked with lawyers at both of the agencies trying to resolve uh, many of the the requests without having to file a lawsuit, but the agencies have not followed up with the requested records. All right, so that's WRAL's story. We have an update. <clears throat> One of the uh, media... Uh, outlets that's involved in the lawsuit is WBTV and their lead investigative reporter Nick Oxner he took to the Twitter machine yesterday giving an update on where we stand Uh, they had a virtual court hearing you know on the zoom or whatever and uh, this was about the I'll read to you his tweets he says a public records lawsuit brought by 27 media outlets Uh, on this call a lawyer from uh, the administration said that 
high-level government officials like cabinet secretaries and the governor should not have to come to a mediation regarding public records. <laughs> All right, so the people in charge, they shouldn't have to answer for this stuff. What, are you kidding me? He's literally making that argument. The lawyer said those officials have more important things to do, just in case anybody was unclear as to like why they shouldn't be bothered. It's because they're doing important stuff. Okay, unlike you guys with this silly mediation, why would you ever need to have us there to defend our decisions or the agencies that work for us? Like, this this is not a good look, okay? It's just when you bill yourself, as Governor Cooper did, as the most transparent governor, you know, um, this is not a good look that, first off, you're not complying with these records requests, but then when they have to sue you to get the records that you're refusing to give them, you say you can't be bothered. You have more important things to do. This is like Mayor Bill de Blasio, that little fascist up in New York City, who said uh, you know, that uh, he needed to be able to go to the gym, even though he prevented everybody else in the city from going to gyms. He needs to go to the gym and work out uh, because, you know, he needs to stay fit because he's more important than you are. He's leading you all through the crisis. Got to keep my strength up. Got to keep my energy. Got to stay healthy. What would you guys do without me? I'm so vital to the crisis response. <laughs> right? This is the hubris of these people. It's like, you know, the classic is... um well, there are, well, there's a more modern classic, which is the, uh, what's his face, Maduro down in Venezuela, who, who would do these, you know, m like ridiculously long, all day televised speeches, propaganda, basically, on state TV. And while his people are starving, uh, the, he thinks the camera has cut away, but it actually hasn't. And so it's still broadcasting. He thinks that he's off camera now. And the guy's got some food on a plate sitting right next to him below the desk, right? So he, so it's on a lower stool. So as he thinks they've gone to break or something, he turns and he starts chowing down on this burrito, sorry, burrito, and he starts chowing down on this thing. And meanwhile, his people are like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I haven't eaten in three days. We had to go kill some neighborhood dogs in order to get some protein. And this guy's, you know, eating this uh, uh, this food on camera. And uh, and he is actually he actually got fatter during their famine, which is that's a true testament right, <laughs> to socialism right there. A true testament to socialism. The leader gets fatter while the people starve. And the response is always, well, he has to he has to stay fed. I mean, what would the country do without him leading it? I, I don't know. Maybe eat. Just throwing that out there. Um, and then, of course, you know, the the famous example of Stalin, you know, uh, in, in USSR, where he's, uh, you know, having all of these people starve to death and die. It's one of the hallmarks of socialism and communism is everybody starves to death. It's you would think at some point people would, you know, connect the two, like the ideology with the starvation, but I digress. Uh, and, you know, people are, are yelling at his officials who had come to, you know, visit some town or whatever, and they're like, please tell Stalin we're starving, we need help, and all this. <laughs> As if he doesn't know. Right. Okay, yeah, we'll be sure and let let Stalin know that you guys are starving to death as he planned. Okay, yeah, we'll totally get that message to him. So, specifically... Um, the lawyer for the governor's uh, administration says that these officials, the governor and Mandy Cohen and Eric Hooks, they should not be, quote, taking uh, their uh, this should not be taking from their critical duties at a time like this. <laughs> so we're we are in a crisis, people. They need their strength. They need to keep working. They they cannot sit in a mediation 
uh, with these people, these media people. A reminder, Oxner says, this is a lawyer paid for by the citizens of the state of North Carolina. Today's hearing, he says, was convened because the media outlets asked a judge for an order saying that the parties don't have to mediate. So this is what the so get this. The governor is saying through the lawyer that we should mediate. Oh, we don't need to go to court. Let's not go to court over this, which is weird because Cooper goes to court over like everything. Right. So he's like, we should not go to court over this. We should mediate mediate let's mediate with the media see it's like right there in the word media mediate let's do this and oh yeah we're not going to be there though (laughs) so yeah i mean we'll have people take care of it for us i mean i'm not going to be there i'm too important i'm leading us through the crisis right so uh media you mediate with some of these lawyers okay Uh, but not us and and the media is like you know what screw this we're not interested in mediating with you okay we're not interested in this we went to this judge and um we do not want to have a mediation. Uh, the lawyer from the attorney general's office says that the parties could benefit from talking, even though this is what the media has been trying to do since March. The media has been trying to get an audience, trying to talk, trying to work it out, and they're not getting responses. They're they're having their calls and emails ignored. Just refusal to comply. Because the government officials named in our lawsuit won't agree uh, to not have a mediation, a judge just ruled we have to have one. And it's not going to happen until mid-July, which means these agencies have at least another month before anybody is going to make them produce these records. Our lawyer asked that the named parties in our lawsuit actually appear for the mediation. Their lawyers from the attorney general's office say they don't have to. We'll see if they show up on July 14th. So if you want information on COVID-19 and the rates and the the, the uh, rates of infection and where the spread is and deaths and all that stuff, all of the information that the media is requesting, they're not going to get for another month. And we probably have a pretty good reason why Cooper's administration doesn't want to provide this information. I think at this point, what it looks like to me is that his administration has not handled this crisis very well. And you've heard me railing against uh, this lack of a plan for nursing homes. And it continues. The It astounds me that, the, that our uh, leadership in this state still hasn't figured out a way to uh, test all of the people going into nursing homes and meat processing facilities and jails and prisons. This is where the spread is occurring, right? This is where people uh, have, this is where the outbreaks are occurring. The spread is all over the place. Don't get me wrong. There's spread everywhere. But the people who are bringing it into the congregate care facilities, particularly the nursing homes, right? This is where people are dying because they're the most vulnerable people. And this administration seems to not understand that, which I cannot fathom at this stage, four months into this thing, I cannot understand why they're just getting around to doing testing. And even then, uh, it's not even going to be daily testing. It's going to be like a, it's going to be like weekly testing for staff at these nurse, at the private nursing homes. I don't understand it. Anyway, uh, last week, Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force called up Secretary Mandy Cohen. 
with these concerns about the state's coronavirus response. And uh, the Cooper administration attempted to uh, obfuscate, to cloud Burks's message in that call during that press conference uh, last week. We covered this last week. Uh, the North Carolina Republican Party put out a press release from which I am reading. They say uh, that Congressman Greg Murphy publicly revealed the true substance of Dr. Burks's conversation with Cohen. And according to Dr. Murphy, Dr. Burks called to find out what systemic issues were plaguing North Carolina's response to COVID-19. This new information explains why the Cooper administration adamantly refuses to follow North Carolina's Public Records Act. Cooper's administration knows there's a problem, but Cooper is hiding the data to hide his failures. I kind of have to tend to agree with that. A.P. Dillon writing at the North State Journal. Headline, Congressman reaffirms North Carolina metrics had issues prior to reopening. Um, I ran these numbers two days ago, so I apologize. They may not be completely up to date by the time you hear this, but they were accurate as of about, uh, well, probably like 36 hours ago. Um, And again, this is June 18th. So the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, um, contacted Mandy Cohen about some of the state's rising COVID-19 metrics, as well as concerns about the state's sluggish COVID-19 testing response to outbreaks. Once again, uh, outbreaks are two cases or more. A cluster is five or more. There are, um, let's see here, 102 nursing home outbreaks in this state 102 nursing home outbreaks so that means there's two 59 in residential care facilities and 22 in correctional facilities there are about 800 people in the hospital that is a seven-day rolling average so that you take the last seven days take an average of each day and we are sort of holding steady it's flat kind of but it's a it has gone up a little bit over the last week or two the number of hospitalizations is about 800 i'm going to give you some of the um some of the overall numbers testing uh and by the way i just saw on the twitter machine that uh brett jensen in uh at wbt in charlotte uh reported that uh he got data from the mecklenburg county uh folks and the numbers that they ran Apparently, their testing data is all screwed up because uh, they've been running all of these tests at like CVS and stuff. They partnered up with CVS, the the state did, and through the, these local health departments. And CVS is only reporting the positive case numbers. They're not giving you how many tests were actually conducted. They're not keeping track of how many tests were done. <laughs> Why would you not know how many tests are done? Don't you think that would be important, right? If you're running, I mean, honestly, if you're running half a million tests and a hundred thousand test positive, then that would be like 20%, right? But if I shouldn't have picked such large numbers here, but if you're running, you know, I don't know if you're running a hundred million tests, see, I should have gone much smaller numbers because now the the math is getting too big. People aren't going to comprehend it, but like you're going to have a lower percentage of positive cases. So here are the total number of tests in the state. So what I just went over, that's just Mecklenburg County. But now the data is going to be screwed up because of all of this. So tests, uh, there have been somewhere in the neighborhood of about 650,000 tests. They're running about um, 45,000 cases right now. 
But by the way, this is just current cases. We don't know like how many people have recovered and that sort of thing. Um, let's see, two to fourteen hundred. Uh, right around. Oh, I'm sorry, around fourteen hundred cases uh, is the seven day average. All right, uh, and so this is. I mean, they're doing a lot more testing, and so they're catching a lot more people that have the COVID-19, which is a good thing. Buncombe County, 456 cases, 34 deaths. Henderson County, 447 cases, 48 deaths. Haywood County, 65 cases, zero deaths. McDowell, 159 cases, one death. Transylvania, 17 cases, one death. Madison County, Five cases, zero deaths, and Yancey County, 27 cases, zero deaths. So obviously the biggest numbers here are out of Hendersonville, or sorry, Henderson County and Buncombe County, where you've got over 400 cases in each county, and you've got, you know, three to four dozen deaths in each county as well. But almost all of those are in nursing homes. Like almost seven out of 10 deaths in these in our counties are all in these nursing homes and Uh, long-term care facilities. The deaths associated with COVID-19 in the state are over 1,000 now. The majority of the deaths, 642 of them at least, or about 60% of all the deaths, are attributed to nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And by the way, our stats on this, the the two-thirds, they're higher than anywhere else in the country. So it's quite obvious that this administration has not prioritized nursing homes to guard the nursing homes we also have meat processing plants there's outbreaks in the meat processing plants and department of health and human services secretary dr mandy cohen she says well you know we don't have regulatory oversight of the of the meat processing plants right but so you can shut down every business in the state of north carolina but you can't set up any kind of testing regime out in front in the parking lot right you can't you can't go to all of the if you went to every single meat processor and said look everybody is doing this every meat processing plant we're all we're, we're setting up testing at every one of them and anybody that's got it they're not allowed into the plant how many plants do you think would say no 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 i don't want that right of course they would take that of course they would in briefings this week um cohen has tied an increase in positives and hospitalizations back to reopening activities. Uh, But the White House Coronavirus Task Force official said that North Carolina's reporting issues were going on long before reopening began. Uh, Dr. Greg Murphy, congressman, we've had him on the program, said that in his conversations with Dr. Burks, she said that in the case of North Carolina, there was, quote, some kind of a systemic flaw and that had uh, this had led the state to have a defined slope in the number of cases. And it goes back to the start of the pandemic. Referring to Burks, Murphy said she was, quote, very emphatic that the rise in metrics did not have to do with reopening the state. He elaborated and said that there is, quote, some intervention that we have not done that has led to our persistent rise in cases when compared to other states. Ooh, 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 I have an idea. I think I know. I think I know. Some intervention we have not done. I think I have an idea. Could it be? No, I don't know for sure. This is just a guess, okay? I'm just spitballing, but maybe the nursing homes. All right, I'm just, it's just a shot in the dark here. Uh, but I think maybe the nursing homes. It's unclear what intervention is missing, and Murphy said it was important that North Carolina be looking at what other states have done. He did say that he believed the state 
did not, quote, clamp down on nursing home facilities soon enough. Since early March, I'm sorry, March 27th, late March, the North State Journal, from uh, which I just read, has been calling in uh, to the daily press conferences. I watch the daily press conferences as well. I record them. I give you audio bites from them because they're important, right? What they're telling us, these things that now I don't just play stenographer for them, but uh, you know, I, I cover the, the, the press conference. We bring you the audio and then I ask questions that I'm not allowed to ask of the administration. Anyway, the North state journal there, they've been calling in and getting on the line and waiting in queue um, but since March 27th, they have never been allowed to ask a question at the governor's press conferences. Cooper has typically given two and sometimes three briefings per week, every week, since the beginning of April. For the entire months of April and May, however, the North State Journal has been shut out of asking questions to Cooper. That was not the case, actually, in early March, because in early March, he was doing in-person briefings. And the North State Journal would go to those in person, and they would be able to ask ask a question or two. Um, However, at the end of March, when the pandemic became worse and Cooper started shutting everything down, Uh, He canceled his in-person press briefings, right? March 27th was a Friday. And the last time the governor and his press team would call on the North State Journal to ask a question. Beginning on March 31st, Cooper's administration began using a new platform to conduct the media availability. This new platform required users to register each day for the briefings, transitioning to technology platforms is a familiar routine in the current state of affairs, but the new digital queuing system has given the administration the ability to pick and choose who can ask questions. This is great reporting, by the way. I think this is Matt Mercer. Yeah, Matt Mercer at the North State Journal, NSJonline.com. And because um, I've, I've, I've wondered, how are they screening these calls? How are they, how are they doing this? And now it makes sense. Now it makes sense because Mercer went and asked these the North State Journal, they went and did some journalisming. I'm not kidding. They actually committed acts of journalism. Like, this is what it sounds like. They went and they found out what platform is this? Who is running this platform? How is How does it work? Right? It's no surprise, he says, that certain outlets seem to get called on during every briefing. Even Charlotte Agenda, a website primarily covering entertainment in Uptown Charlotte. That's true, by the way, the Charlotte Agenda. <laughs> it's basically, yeah, it's basically like a Mountain Express kind of a thing. But they, yeah, it's like entertainment stuff. Every now and again, they'll do like a long form piece or whatever, but that really not a lot. Um, Charlotte Agenda, they've been called on three times during these briefings. North State Journal, never once. North Carolina's only statewide newspaper is not the only outlet to voice frustration. The Carolina Journal and WBT Radio's Brett Jensen have also reported similar treatment. In an email on April 16th sent to Keith Acri, the public relations officer at the Emergency Operations Center, North State Journal asked why they weren't being called on. That email was ignored, which, of course, it was. It's the Cooper administration. A follow-up email was sent in May, and he replied, Quote, for most news conferences, we have 20 to 30 reporters dialed in from across the state. We usually have time for 8 to 10 questions. 
which of course is not responsive. He's not then he's not asking like what do your operations look like? How many people call in? Like he's not, he's he's asking why haven't we been called on? Because you're going to find out why they haven't been called on. It's intentional. Spoiler alert. This still doesn't answer why WRAL, the News and Observer, ABC 11, they all consistently have their reporters and even multiple reporters get to ask questions during every briefing. And now they're getting follow-ups too. The teleconference platform that they're using is called Maestro Conference. And their clients are all, for the most part, left-leaning. They ran Barack Obama's presidential campaign, MoveOn.org, or work for them. Uh, Obama's campaign, MoveOn.org, Eric Holder's National Democratic Redistricting Committee, and the uh, chief operating officer of this company uh, told the North State Journal that it began as a campaign platform for progressive causes and is still primarily used for that purpose. The company indicated that representatives from the North Carolina Emergency Management reached out to them for uh, for demonstrations and then negotiated the use of the platform. Isn't that interesting? The emergency operations reached out to Maestro? Hmm. wonder where they got that lead from. The COO did seem surprised, however, that the briefings were only being used for the narrow purpose of screening calls and questions from the media. Our reporter learned that the primary purpose of Maestro's conference platform is to organize teams into breakout sessions during calls. What does that mean? Teams. There's a team of undesirable reporters. We're going to put you on this team. Don't answer their calls. That's the ignore team. This is the A team. We're going to take their calls over here. They specifically sought out a platform to keep unfriendly media away from the governor during these press conferences. That's a wrap for this episode. We'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a positive review as well. I do appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.